The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Tax cuts or tax rises? Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement claimed to reduce the burden on grafters. But overall, we're still paying the most tax since the Second World War. And there's worse news, higher inflation than expected next year and lower growth. The one plus, the Treasury's coffers are growing faster as a result of inflation and more people being dragged into higher tax. But don't expect public spending to keep up with inflation in some areas it looks like another round of austerity. So is this prudent housekeeping with some sensible stimulus? Or a naked bid to win next year's election? The why? Curve. Well, I mean, clearly they have no chance of winning next year's well, election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they can try, but it's not going to work. It's how for badly them. they lose, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Could, could be that. It. But no, I mean, you know, there is a. Is, is this just what it seems to be, which is uh, laying out the ground? I mean, the very fact that a lot of the change is coming on January the 6th rather than the end of the tax year, mm. it makes you wonder, doesn't well, it? Well, I didn't see a great deal of structure in it. Mm. You know, it was like we were told, it's almost like by saying there's 110 different items here. Mm. It's almost like you're never going to get your head around this. Don't worry about it. But tell you what, we'll give you 2% cut to national insurance just so you feel like there's something good going on but all the rest of it's far too complicated for you the general proletariat to understand 110 measures and all this yes it's crazy stuff no you're right I mean there didn't seem to be much there it was headlinable stuff Mm. and even you know it's interesting the papers seem divided on whether they want to just highlight the fact oh it's the biggest tax cutting thing or the fact that there's an enormous tax burden well look there's a lot to talk about in all of this so let's talk to somebody who knows all about it the man who has advised us before, Simon French, who's chief economist and head of research at Panmure Gordon. He joins us now. So, Simon, uh, supposedly 110 measures. Has anyone actually figured out what those 110 are? I mean, there's obviously one or two big hitters. There's only one, really, isn't there, which is the you know cut to national insurance. But uh, 110, uh, have That's you counted lot. them? Well, the law of big numbers. Uh, I think Jeremy Hunt, if I recall, threatened to read them all out. And there was mm. nervous, nervous laughter in the chamber uh, during the autumn <laughs> statement that he might actually follow through with that threat. Um, I haven't actually managed to go through all of them. There's so much supporting documentation at an autumn statement or a budget. Mm. It takes uh, days. Uh, it'll be this weekend's work to, to go through all of it. But mm. I think it illustrates, doesn't it, the pretty bipartisan view that the supply side of the UK economy is, if not broken, it's severely holed beneath the waterline and and needs a lot of um, repair across a multitude of sectors. And you're right, national insurance to cuts to try and improve work incentives and, of course, full expensing made permanent to try and include uh, improve investment incentives. And I think if you're looking at long-dated problems with the UK's supply response, that underinvestment is where the UK benchmarks really badly over a multi-decade view compared so, to its G7 competitors. But is this going to fix, is that going to, I mean... Well, and and is this actually not, not really something that's looking to the long term, despite everything the government says and Rishi Sunak says, this is essentially preparing for an election, isn't it? Is that what it sounds like? And yeah, because uh, the fact that it's oh, all kicking sick. in... Well, yeah, but it's all kicking in in January rather than the beginning of next financial year. I mean, that uh, surely says there's going to be an election before then. Well, you could take a different view, which is, uh, let's just take a different view for the purposes of debate. I probably share some of your political cynicism, but we have heard uh, this morning, uh, this morning of this recording, that the energy price uh, cap in the UK goes up 5% this winter. Now, if you take 
uh, also into account the subsidy that was available for households last winter that isn't available this winter, actually the amount that households will be spending on energy is probably going to be higher this winter than last winter. And so the Chancellor might conceivably, if he was joining us on this podcast, uh, say, look, um, there's still a very significant cost of living squeeze. I don't want to wait till April to hand um, improvements in take-home pay to to, to UK workers. Mm. Yeah, thank goodness he's not, because he might threaten to do those 110 policy (laughs) measures. We'd never get him out of here. Uh, But if this fiscal headroom, it's an interesting term, isn't it, that all of a sudden has emerged, uh, because the the position is better than we thought. If he's worried about government debt, and he clearly is, why would he just not just say, well, that's a bit of a, you know, we'll, we'll just use that to draw down the debt? Why did he have to feel the need to spend it? I think because the UK economy still has some quite significant growth challenges. We do not see growth going back to anything like trend for two to three years. And partly that's an adjustment to higher costs of capital, higher interest rates uh, for the household and corporate sector, but partly because there is some quite significant damage from the adjustment to both Brexit and the pandemic. And those two factors mean that any additional headroom, which is always, you're right, it's always an artificial construct based on somewhat arbitrary fiscal rules. But whatever headroom there is, I think the current economic and, of course, political climate means that that is more likely to be spent than, if you like, banked. But, you know, a lack of fiscal discipline is not a uniquely British Mm. um, problem. One only needs to look across the Atlantic to some of the budgetary Mm. debate going on in the United States to realise there are no votes currently. There's no economic um, uh, dividend to be yielded by uh, talking about balanced budgets at the moment. But but the point, I suppose, which which has come out of this more than anything else, is the headline claim, this is a tax-cutting budget. That's all tax-cutting statement. That is what is mm. being put out there. And, and yet, yet and yet, the balance of saying we are more heavily taxed now than we have been in 75 years overall. How yep. can one square any of that? And, and also, yep. you know, the, the, the conversation yeah. we've, you know, we've been having or he's been having saying that, you know, we, well, we can't cut taxes because we've got to make sure that inflation doesn't kick back in again. And, you know, mm. just this week, Andrew Bailey in front of the Treasury Select Committee said he's worried about the persistence of inflation. And one of the reasons was uh, services prices. In other words, you know, services, yeah. services inflation. If we've got supposedly more money in our pockets, are we going mm. to go out and spend it? And isn't that going to make that situation worse? Well, two huge questions there. I'll take each in turn. So to to Rogers on the, what I would describe the pithy phrase of the the tyranny of marginal changes. Um, So how can those, both these statements be true that it's a tax cutting autumn statement, which it is, and the tax burden is going to the highest level since the Second World War? Also true. Well, the marginal change of the autumn statement was to reduce the tax burden from what we thought it was going to be before the autumn statement. But those decisions made before the autumn statement will take the tax burden to 38%, which is the highest it's been since the Second World War. So they are consistent statements. And I note the front page of the FT and the uh, Times today took very different stances to exactly the same statement, if you like, illustrating the confusion. Um, By the way, similar story on growth. Growth estimates were downgraded, but actually the size of the UK economy was upgraded versus what the OBR said in, uh, in March. So further confusions uh, to, in terms of the interpretation. 
And then on to the, the even bigger question of uh, tax cuts at a time when we're still worried about inflation and clearly memories don't need to go back too far to remember the um, worries that stalked the mini budget just over a year ago from Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng on similar supply side efforts, fiscal stimulus um, that uh, spooked sterling and gilt markets. Uh, A couple of things to say. First of all, we're in a different backdrop. While Andrew Bailey is right to be cautious, it's partly self-serving to be cautious, of mm. course, he doesn't want financial conditions to loosen. But um, inflation is falling and it's falling very rapidly now, which is very different to 12 months ago when it was rising very rapidly. Um, so investors are more sanguine. And, and that's just, I mean, uh, it's not Liz Truss's fault that she took office. That, that it's probably the only thing that wasn't her fault. I was um, going to say, that's not, that's not a long list, is it? <clears throat> no, it's not. It's not. Um, but it wasn't her fault. That the, the timing was, was poor, and therefore a similar prognosis trying to address the supply side gets a very different response when the economic backdrop is, is different. Mm. But also, perhaps going into the sort of the details of these reforms, you're right. Aggregate demand is increased by indexing universal credit, indexing um, uh, the triple the lock pension well above the rate of inflation, and by cutting uh, payroll taxes to the self-employed and to um, payway workers. Um, but the way the OBR looked at it was that the Office of Budget Responsibility, that is, is that the supply response... Uh, from the economy in terms of more workers presenting themselves for work and greater investment from businesses should offset that. Now, if that doesn't come through, then yes, it will be inflationary. But I do think we get ourselves in a bit of a doom loop if we don't think that anything can impact the um, the supply side of the economy. So uh, I think I'm prepared to go with, and certainly market response mm. seems to be prepared to go with the Chancellor on this one. How, how reliable are – we talk about the OBR figures, and of course, notoriously mm. – Can just, I just answer that before well, you even finish the question? Not at all. Okay. I mean, the <laughs> fact that those numbers change so much from March to, to this latest set of numbers shows mm. that they really don't have a strong handle on what's going on, do they? Uh, well, uh, whether it's the OBR's fault or whether that's the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, fault, one of the reasons why um, there was this, if you like, dichotomy between a slower growth but a larger economy was because the ONS upgraded the UK's growth performance since the bottoming out of the pandemic in a very poorly timed release and the last Friday of the summer holidays in August, finding a spare £38 billion down the back of the sofa. Mm. Um, I wish I found £38 billion down the back of the sofa. I've got two young kids, so all I find is sticky sweets. But it's uh, Worth the, a look, though, Simon. You never know. But worth a look. Definitely worth a look. Um, but the ONS uh, is, were, if you like, bequeathing the OBR with a larger estimate for the economy. Mm. Um, So I wouldn't pitch all the blame on the OBR on this particular juncture, although, as I've written about this morning to clients, um, some of the cynicism I do have with the OBR is their constant underestimation of how much labour market participation there has been in the UK economy for the last 13 years. Systematically very bearish, very pessimistic, and actually... Each and every time, the UK economy has 
performed rather better on participation yeah. than the yeah. OBR. Assumed. And yet we're still told, aren't we, 400,000 uh, more people since the pandemic who are of working age, who are economically inactive, which is why Jeremy Hunt is saying, you know, we're signing off so many people mm. into benefits with no requirement that they look for work, whether they're sick or disabled. It's a, a The potential is wrong economically and morally, he said. So the moral answer is that people who are sick should go back to work, but get driving disabled people into into, into work isn't it's, that a bit? It's, no, it's a bit marginal. Of a, I mean, none of that's really. I mean, it, it, more the moral oh, case. Wait, is it actually going to make? Is it just it a pipe no dream for it to happen anyway? Well, so look, it's such a uh, it's such a dangerous territory it's for the to get absolutely. it yeah, 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 absolutely. But, but, but we're taking you there. <laughs> well, you are taking me there, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take the the dangerous invite. Uh, I will try and be brave. Um, but we know that the the the, the spike you talk about four hundred thousand people on the list of people who are sick and disabled were relatively recently. Um, either seeking work or in work. So I began my career more than 20 years ago now as a labour market economist in the DWP working on such issues. And we know when people have a recent attachment to the labour market, then interventions, which are always partly carrot Mm. and partly stick, Mm. um, and there are both, in the recent government, uh, you know, statements on this, uh, Mel Stride's uh, reform plan mm. to try and get people back to work has has a bit of both. Um, we know that people who've been recently attached to the labour market, the route back is slightly easier than those who've been sick and disabled, perhaps uh, their whole life or, or for long periods of time. So, um, I think it's why a, a pretty, you know, a relatively rapid response to this big spike has a better chance of success. Then perhaps if, you know, there is always going to be a cohort of people who are unable to work and even compositional changes of you know, remote working, working from home will will really not eat much into that uh, cohort of people who are probably not going to be work ready. But it's those who are on the margins where interventions, I think, have a track record of more success. But is it really going to make that much difference? In, I mean, these in are very small numbers, yeah. relatively speaking. We're not really thinking that the army of the unwilling and the disabled pushed back onto the shop floor is actually going to turn the economy around. That's nonsense. And isn't the issue, real issue, productivity, well, which is, you know, yeah, those I mean, who are yeah, working, yeah, how, how hard I are they working? Agree, could not agree with you more that the real issue is productivity. Um, but but I don't think it's quite right to say that you know, reducing inactivity can't make a contribution. Of course, we have 8.7 million people of working age in working in inactivity at the moment. But that was north of 9 million uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic. It was north of 9 million back in 2012. And a, a succession of you know, quiet, steady supply side reforms have in the past brought that down. Um, we can always debate and we'll never get the right answer. We can always debate on the right ratio of carrot and stick to make that happen. Um, but I think to, to, to write this group off as, as, as not warranting attention to mm. try and encourage them back into the workforce, I think is wrong. To the second point on productivity, absolutely right. And we are going to be in this debate for every fiscal event as far as the eye can see if we don't nail the issue of public sector productivity particularly it's not great in the private sector but in the public sector it is dire since 1997 public sector productivity has gone up by less than five percent well, well, can we can we define what we mean by public sector productivity in that way in basic terms what is not happening that should be in what way well we continue to put in 
you know, a lot of money into the public sector and the public sector's outputs um, are broadly linear to the inputs put in, which is no productivity growth at all. You get a pound, you put a pound of inputs in, you get a pound of outputs out. Now, of course, the the, the beauty, the, the secret sauce in economics is to put in a pound and get a maybe a pound and two out a year later, or, you know, that is what productivity growth is. It is producing more with the same or, or uh, the same with less. We are not getting that systematically under governments of different colours for 25 years in the public sector. And if you look at the funding squeeze now pencilled in for the other side of the general, uh, the general election, whoever is in charge of the Treasury, whether it's Jeremy Hunt, Rachel Reeves, or someone else, could be Nigel Farage if he uh, successfully makes us. it out of the jungle, um, uh, they will have this, this particular challenge because constantly putting money into public services um, with no productivity uplift will mean that aforementioned tax burden, the highest since uh, 1945, uh, will continue to rise. And isn't part of that the, 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 the do relating to how that money is being spent, though? So, for example, uh, just that argument that, you know, that whole multiplier effect, that if, you, if you've if you got government money and the government money is put into investing in something which is going to grow and help, the, you know, build the economy, that's mm. fine, versus putting money into paying teachers or paying doctors and nurses providing a service, which is not the same sort of investment, is it? And yet we, you know, so if we're cutting back on the first sort of investment, but we're seeing more, you know, an aging population and greater demands to be spent on the health service, then of course we're going to see productivity decline. Um, yeah, I think you make a good point, which is that we sometimes look at investment in human capital as different to investment in physical capital, but they're all part of what is known as total factor productivity. So we need to focus mm -hmm. on on, on both. The question is whether um, uh, the answer to to this is 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 more money or more reform. Now, if again, you know, we invited Jeremy Hunt on the podcast, if we invited the Prime Minister, we went up the pay grade even further, we invited the Prime Minister onto the podcast, he would say, I'm excited by AI. He's excited by everything, isn't he, uh, mm. in the technology <laughs> sphere. But he's excited by the potential of AI, artificial intelligence, to um, quite make a, quite a significant impact in the delivery of public services. You think about the large clerical, paper-based, repetitive roles that make up quite a large proportion of the 5.7 million in public sector uh, roles, then there's the opportunity. But I, my criticism on what I was generally quite positive about the autumn statement, my criticism was the what I thought was a pretty deafening silence on public sector productivity and translating excitable words on AI or Francis Maud's recent review or Lord Maud's recent mm. review on governance uh, in the civil service. Um, all these, the, the, the recent back to the office edict uh, for civil servants, all of those things don't translate into a plan to actually get more out of the inputs you put into the Be, Because if you spend on the public sector in terms of putting in investment, for example, in AI, that is initially going to cost money, that's just not something, again, politically, that's greatly acceptable at the moment. But they, it's a bit nebulous as well, isn't it? Everyone's trying to figure out how, the, you know, what the impact well, of AI is really going to be. But, the, but I mean, I can see your point about the the, the public sector, but isn't it really the private sector where we yeah. want to see a lot of that growth coming from? So I looked at those uh, OBR numbers. I might be reading it wrong, but next year it looks like 0.7% growth in GDP, which is a lot better than they were forecasting back in, in February, but a 5.6% a fall in fixed investment by business 
And a lot of the growth is coming from a 4% increase in government consumption. So it's the it's the it's the public sector that's fueling that growth, but it's not real growth, is it? I mean, we want the real growth in GDP to come from the private sector, and they're saying well, we're not going to be investing too much because we don't think the outlook's looking too good. You look, you make a you make a very fair point, and and one of the reasons why the growth outlook is pretty challenging, and not just in the UK, but 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 globally, and that includes now the United States, which has defied economic gravity for the last two or three years. Um, one of the reasons is that there is an adjustment to be taking place to higher interest rates. And of course, in the investment landscape, that raises the hurdle rate for new investment. Mm. Now, any economist worth their salt would say, if you suggest, if you raise the hurdle rate, um, largely outside the control of the government, the, the, the spike in inflation that has led to higher interest rates, you will get less investment. So some of the exhaust pipe data you're referring to is a, a result of the fact that the cost of capital for companies looking to invest has gone up three, fourfold over the last two years. And it, it's it's incongruous to think there wouldn't be a response to in, in terms of investment. Yeah. And that coupled with the fact that they'll be saying, well, you know, we want to see the growth in the economy before we invest. I mean, that's, you know, interest rates obviously are important. Well, I think that that is the key, because I mean, that's the one thing we haven't really mentioned, the thing that's outside the government control, the what the Bank of England is going to be doing, how it sees its position, perhaps vis-a-vis the Fed and numerous other central banks, and going forward, how they interpret inflation. And that mm. is so so big a factor and so totally outside anything that Jeremy Hunt can really control at all. No, 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 no. The government reduced inflation. Don't you remember? Oh, did they? Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. They did. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, I, can I forgot. Bank of England. We cynical. I can see where you're leading me, and you're, you're <laughs> right, of course, which is the government deserves very little of the credit for bringing down inflation in the UK. But it also deserved very little of the criticism that it got on the ramp up of uh, inflation. And mm. I can understand why ministers from the PM downwards go, hang on, guys, we took all the flack that it was our fault on the way up. And you're now telling us we can't take any of the credit on the way down. It feels a bit asymmetrical. So I have some sympathy. I, I my, my diagnosis is government was relatively little to blame on the way up and it's relatively um, uh, worth rewarding or praising it on the way down but that's not how politicians have seen the blame and the reward game playing out so let's go back to the the tax and let me get into full cynic mode now so universal credit rose by 6.7 percent it rose by 10 percent didn't early in the year so so it's sort of keeping in line with inflation so that's good state pension rises by more than inflation eight and a half percent but it's triple locked and just by coincidence 45 percent of those age 65 plus intent to vote Conservative for the next election versus 8% of 18 to 24-year-olds. So that, yeah, that those statistics, I think, might be out of date, just, actually, but yes. You're just a, you're, well, yeah, you think it's more. <laughs> I think fewer and fewer, <laughs> even of the pensioners, want to vote Tory, but anyway. But anyway, there's the opportunity. Let's hang on to the core vote. That says the cynic, not me, just, you know, to just throwing mm-hmm. it out there. But why wouldn't you, why 2% on national insurance? Why wouldn't you be there saying, well, hang on, We've got this freeze in tax thresholds until 2027, 28. I mean, as every year goes by, we're all going to have less money to spend. There's going to be less money in the economy helping with that growth. Surely the sensible approach would be to say, well, if we've got this fiscal headroom, let's unlock that freeze that we've got on tax thresholds. Now, I can see that is harder to sell than a 2% cut now because that's an easy message you can get across in the media. 
But if uh, if everyone was smart enough to figure it out, surely we'd be better off to say, well, actually, let's let's allow those thresholds to move in line with inflation, wouldn't we? Yes, I mean, we must. There's a couple of things there. One is uh, national insurance. The decision to go with national insurance again will be intellectually justified by trying to reward work, whereas income tax reductions, either by unfreezing the thresholds or changing the marginal rate, rewards also income from other sources, non-work sources, mm. uh, returns from capital, um, uh, returns from uh, savings, etc. And so I think I'm happy from a sort of, you know, trying to reward work uh, in preference to rewards from other um, forms um, with the choice of national insurance. But then also, we've talked about earlier in the podcast, um, the fact that you know, you've still got to be careful of the inflationary impulse that, that, that could happen here. And fiscal drag, while um, unpopular, um, is, 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 if you like, uh, performing a role in um, making sure the domestic demand doesn't um, uh, contribute too much to that. And I guess reducing VAT, which would be another way, would be just would be driving consumption, wouldn't it? So you would yeah, have well, that would be directly inflationary potentially. Yeah, and also structurally. I mean, we, I think we know that the UK overconsumes and underinvests. So a VAT cut um, it doesn't feel like the right prognosis. Mm. VAT reform, by all means, we have a mm. we should broad, be broadening the base of VAT and perhaps you know, compensating by cutting the marginal rate. So the overall take is about the same, um, but becomes a more efficient tax. You look around a tax, and, and and there's still plenty of opportunities to reform taxes. I mean, one of the things was spoken about and didn't happen was inheritance tax reform. Yeah. Um, actually, slashing and burning inheritance tax is probably not a very smart move, but actually reforming it to lower the rate, but also limiting the amount that could be pumped into um, you know, assets that are effectively tax avoidance schemes, um, farmland, um, unproductive business assets, uh, etc. That those are kind of good reforms. That there's still a long list of things the government could be doing without mm. sort of tinkering around with marginal but that rates. That was that was obviously politically unpalatable, wasn't it? Because clearly they were looking at that. They threw it out there to try and test the water, and yeah, then it came, say, came just... back with everyone saying, oh, "Hang on, that's helping the you know that's helping whatever small percentage it is that are actually paying this." Which brings us back to the idea: this is in fact. A, a whole statement that is intended for one purpose, really, which is is to make things look reasonably good in the oh, opening back to months. The cynic, back to the cynic. Right. I mean, it's what it, everything you're saying makes it seem that way. Doesn't well, do you it? remember Norman Lamont? He cut taxes didn't he, before the <laughs> 1992 general election on the basis that you know yes. the the uh, if, if, which if they, they won. lost, which they won. Well, he reversed the taxes. Sure, yeah. <laughs> he reversed I mean, the look, tax cuts shortly afterwards. Look, these 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 are politicians. So I'm not going to try and pretend <laughs> that they don't have uh, one and a half eyes on uh, on the political cycle. But uh, you know, I look across at the various you know tax reforms we heard yesterday, yeah. and and I thought actually, you know, given how expensive full expensing is when you score it in the the, the autumn statement scorecard. Uh, full expense is not going to win any votes for the next general election. Um, it really is. If you wanted to devote that kind of money to, you know, um, shamelessly pursuing votes, you would have cut VAT or you would have done something a bit more what 
near pollsters call a retail offer on tax. Mm. So the fact that they didn't surely has to lean in a little bit to your cynicism. You're going back to your positivism, I'm afraid. I'm sorry. I know this was was a mini-budget, wasn't it? So it's not a time for for Mm. big tax reform. But you mentioned, you know, reforms to inheritance tax. I mean, the the idea of uh, of having a national insurance, the question is, do we, you know, wouldn't it be sensible actually just to abolish that and just integrate that into a a fairer income tax system? Well, that's a much more structured... Yeah, but I mean, there's lots of structural change that's needed. And then on VAT, so I went and got my hair cut yesterday uh, and went to my... <laughs> I went to, this is going off at an angle, where's but then I'll bring, I'll bring it where's back. It's barely an interesting, I have to say, I from this go, point I went of to get my hair cut. I take a photograph of Roger yes. and said, can I have a haircut just like says, this? Well, everyone does. And he says, yeah, would you like the uh, yes. p- pension discount as well if you want to look like that? But um, he, this guy runs a, a barber oh. shop. He gets... Um, well, he he basically says he could grow further, but mm. he doesn't. And I, th- I think this happens for a lot of businesses because he doesn't no, pay VAT. He, he's 80, right on the 85,000, yeah, 80 or 85,000, whatever it is, threshold. And he doesn't want to grow the business anymore. I said, if you could get over that, uh, and he says, but I can't because they have to charge, you know, 20% more uh, or, you know, however it's going to work out. And I'm already the most expensive you know, barbers there are in town. Uh, so he'd lose business because of it. And I'm saying, but if you got over that, you know, you could be five times the size. And he says, yes, he'd like that, but this is an obstacle he just can't get over. Loads of small businesses in that boat. So if you want to increase productivity, if you want to get businesses working harder, get over, get rid of that threshold. I mean, I go higher. to the barbers and I go to the barbers and talk about whether Liverpool or Man United uh, are going to win. <laughs> you have a more, yeah, you have a more interesting life, VAT. I think. We I, need I to tell say. you what, I do not talk about VAT thresholds, but I, <laughs> sure I, I doff my cap to you, sir, for doing that. Um, but you are absolutely right that there are, um, and it is on the VAT thresholds. There's also some very, very strange um, marginal tax rates uh, mm. in income taxes. Yeah, you get over 100,000 and you're basically yeah, paying 60%. As child benefit gets mm. withdrawn, as yeah. student loan repayments kick in. Yeah. There is plenty of tax simplification hiding in plain sight for mm. the true reformist chancellor out there. And is it is it Jeremy Hunt when economic conditions calm down? Will it be Rachel Reeves if she takes uh, yeah. office? Look, the, we, we are crying out for a tax reformist chancellor um but it doesn't set the pulses racing um certainly not 12 months out from yeah election, and that's what so. they need that's what they need to do well look as we move towards towards the end end of the summer let's let's get a sense of where you think in a more general sense the uk economy is going because we had those figures from obr and we said mm. they are at least questionable on the basis of their previous uh, record but do you get the sense that broadly their prognosis now for the 24 25 is yeah. right uh, yeah, more right than the Bank of England. So, um, look, I, I'm not going to celebrate um, my own forecasting uh, too much because my next forecasting failure will be along shortly. It comes with the territory with being an economic forecaster. But <laughs> last year, when the Bank of England and indeed the OBR saw a quite pronounced recession in the UK, I took a different view, uh, given the underlying health of UK household balance sheets. And we have avoided thus far a recession. Um, And the fact that the bank now see no growth for the next 12 months, the OBR see 0.7% growth, I, for what it's worth, see one and a quarter percent growth. I mean, none of those estimates are uh, for hanging out the bunting. But I do think that uh, in an environment where nominal income is going to go up between six and seven percent, 
and inflation will be tacking below 4% in the new year. It's difficult for me to see no growth in the economy, even with all the various geopolitical headwinds that are swirling around and the sort of exhaustion of the excess savings uh, post-pandemic, which has propped up the economy. But, uh, you know, overall, do I see modest growth through the next 12, 18 months? Yes, I do. Um, And if you'd offered people modest growth 12, 18 months ago when... Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, described economic the outlook as apocalyptic. Then I think most people would, uh, they might not admit it this morning, but most people would have bitten your arm off. I just wonder about those tax thresholds having a bigger impact than you're thinking, though. Because I, I mean, on, on the sample of one, I just look at how much I think I'm going to be spending next year and the year after. And, uh, you know, my biggest client pays me. I've got a, it's a CPI linked payment. So I know my, I know the amount of money I'm earning is going to go up, but the amount I'm going to spend relatively is going to go down because I'm, I don't want to get over the, that tax threshold where I start paying 60% tax. Mm. So I'm putting it into my pension funds, which your, is. Your hair is going to be cut less often. It, I, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm not invited back. I hope back. you're I'm buying not, UK mid cap stocks, not, not just pumping it into NVIDIA. But I mean, it's but it's whichever way you know. It's money going. Whichever way is money that's going into the finance sector rather than to the real economy, isn't it? So so it's it's not helping growth a great deal, is it? Well, it depends which fund it's going into. I mean, this is one of the frustrations. Again, from the autumn statement was, um, you know, the moment the UK tax system heavily incentivizes. savers to back US technology companies. Mm. And I'm not clear with the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act that the the taxpayer money should be used to encourage a a lower cost of capital for those US tech giants. Um, There was very little Mm. uh, to try and encourage the uh, the, the funneling of um, investment into UK growth companies. And uh, that, I did think, was a black mark against what otherwise was a pro- quite a so, decent autumn state. So again, isn't it, it gets down to that question of tax reform and uh, will it ever come from well, Jeremy Hunt? Not the side of an election, I think, is going to be the truth of that. Yeah. Which is spot on. Yeah. Simon, thank you. Great to talk again, Simon. My pleasure. Great to join you. There we are, a sense of, uh, well, we haven't really got very far in economic terms. He was on form, though, today. He was, no, he was. was. It's always and, good to talk And the haircutting him. issue is clearly one we'll come back to. Well, yeah, I mean, my barber will be delighted to uh, to have made the cut. A little bit of promotion. Podcast. Yeah, we'll I, put I, a link at the bottom of the podcast. He has invited me not to come back again, though, because I bore the pants <laughs> off him. But anyway. I'm sure um, Now, next week. Yes, well, the Forgotten War is what yes. we're going to be talking about, because while we've, for obviously good reasons, everyone's been thinking about what's been going on in Gaza, nonetheless, there was that war that we've been talking about seemingly endlessly for Gosh, almost two years now. It shows how fickle we are, because yeah. it's still raging on. Yeah. Ukraine not- and Russia are still fighting each other. People are dying every day. Uh, where are we with any of this? I mean, yeah. when we last tuned in, uh, what was the situation? What is it now? And is the fact that it's got into what many people are describing as a stalemate actually a kind of victory for Vladimir Putin? Yeah, and um, what are the consequences of that? We will. If that was the case. All we of will that. dig into all that next week on the Y Curve. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. The Y Curve.